Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. in a congregation that has what I understand to be a long-standing and active group dedicated to Musar, um, to seriously engaging with Jewish traditions regarding character traits, um, and dr- drawing on the legacy of the 19th, early 20th century Musar movement, um, which was an Eastern European Orthodox Jewish movement that placed a particular emphasis on the Musar tradition, on the development of moral character. So I'll share a few words this afternoon about that movement. Um, I'll be relatively frontal for the sake of the recording, um, but I would love if you would write down questions and comments, and um, we'll talk about them at the end. Um, I'll begin with a story, which is a fairly well-known story, which has sometimes been viewed as foundational for the Musar movement. So the story is a Yom Kippur story. It's Kol Nidre the eve of Yom Kippur in Vilna, Lithuania. The congregation gathers in the synagogue. Seemingly everyone is there except for Rabbi Israel Salanter. And that is a shocking absence. Shocking. If there is anyone in the world who you would expect to be in shul on Yom Kippur, it would be Rabbi Israel Salanter. This was a man who preached tirelessly about the need to engage in cheshbon hanefesh, taking stock of one's soul, moral accounting. This was a man who did everything he could to promote a culture of serious introspection and meditative reflection and repentance. This was a man who asked everyone to examine their character traits, not just on Yom Kippur, but every day throughout the year, and especially in the 40 days leading up to Yom Kippur, so that they could then stand before God on Yom Kippur and honestly be able to say, I have done the best that I could do this year, although I could still do better. This was a man who founded an entire movement based on precisely that vision of continual work on character traits. The Musar movement, this movement deeply dedicated to the development of moral character. If there's anyone who you would expect to be in shul on Yom Kippur, it would be Rabbi Israel Salanter, but he was not there. The congregation was extremely worried. They could only imagine that their rabbi was in some terrible accident or had become terribly sick. They proceed with Kol Nidre. Salanter is still not there. They proceed with the rest of the service. Everyone is whispering, looking around, Worriedly, finally near the end of the service, Salanter abruptly enters the synagogue. His coat is rumpled. His hair and beard are full of down. He takes his accustomed place, pulls his talus over his head, begins to pray. And after he finishes his prayer, he explains what had happened. 
On his way to the synagogue, he had heard a child crying. He had followed the sound to a house where he saw a baby crying in its cradle, a bottle of milk just beyond its reach, and a six-year-old girl was fast asleep nearby. He realizes that the children's mother had prepared a bottle and gone off to Kol Nidre, expecting her six-year-old daughter to give the baby its bottle. The older girl had fallen asleep and did not hear the baby crying, so Solanter fed the baby and put it to sleep. The six-year-old woke up and begged him not to leave because she was scared to be left alone, and so he had stayed until the mother returned home. In some versions of the story, the people at the shul say, oh, we're so sorry that this happened to you. You've been working all year on repentance, and now you could not be at Kol Nidre, and he is taken aback. No, you've got it all wrong, we might imagine him saying, Kol Nidre was not the culmination of my work all year. Being present for those children was the culmination of my work all year. All year long, I have been training myself to be more compassionate, trying to stop being so absorbed in my own thoughts, trying to see those in need, trying to open my ears to the cries of those who are vulnerable. And finally, tonight, I was able to hear a cry of someone in need and listen to the fears of someone who was scared and respond by just being present for them. If only I could find ways to do that every day. You could imagine this as a kind of founding moment for Salanter's movement, the Musar movement. You could imagine the group that follows him after this incident who say, yes, we want to train with you to work on our character traits, above all, to work on focusing our attention so that we can be more responsive to the cries of those in need. We want to find opportunities to do that every day. We, too, see this as central to the work of Musar. So as I've noted on your handout, Musar is a word that is often translated as moral discipline or moral instruction or moral correction. It often refers to efforts to discipline and cultivate virtues, good character traits. And when this character-focused movement emerged under the leadership of figures, including Salanter and his senior disciple, Rabbi Simcha Zisolziv, it focused its students on cultivating a range of virtues, which were the object of group study and meditation for select periods of time, perhaps a month for focusing on the virtue of humility, then a month for focusing on the virtue of reverence, then a month for focusing on equanimity, and so on too with other virtues, with honesty and gratitude and patience and respect, silence, faith, love of God, and compassion, love, kindness, compassionately sharing the burden of the other, to use a key phrase from the Musar movement. I'll be focusing our attention on these latter qualities this afternoon, compassion, love, loving kindness, sharing the burden, words expressed by an intertwined group of Hebrew words that are often used together in the writings of the Musar movement, ahava, the generic word for love, chesed, often translated as loving kindness, kindness, love, rachmanut, often translated as mercy or compassion, no se ba'ol im chavero, often, um, I translate that as sharing the burden of one's fellow. These virtues are key virtues in many stories about Rabbi Israel Salanter, such as the one with which I began today, 
although Salanter himself wrote very little about these virtues. But they are the central virtues in the writings of Salanter's senior disciple, Rabbi Simchas Solziv, the first institution builder within the Musar movement, the teacher of most of its prominent rabbis in the following generation, and in many ways, the movement's major moral theorist. Rabbi Simchas Solziv directed Musar-focused learning institutions in Kelm, Lithuania, and then in the town of Groben during the latter half of the 19th century. He was a rabbi who refused to be called rabbi, and he was referred to simply as the altar of Kelm, the elder of Kelm, the old man of Kelm, or simply as Simcha Zissel, which is how I'll refer to him today, Simcha Zissel. We'll spend the next few minutes looking at some of Simcha Zissel's writings, but before we do so, I'll note that just as with his teacher, Israel Salanter, stories of Simcha Zissel's own compassion were widespread in his lifetime. And I'll tell one story which illustrates a particular focus in Simcha Zissel's writing, a particular concern with not only feeling the suffering of those around him, but also sensing suffering when it is not apparent before one's eyes. Simchizasol's students told the story of how he would walk when he was on the main road in Kelm, which was built by prison laborers. As Simchizasol would walk, he would focus himself on the cruelty that such workers experienced. How can people walk on this road in peace? He would ask. Do they not feel the suffering that has been experienced in this place? How can we walk here and not feel that pain and not see the blood and the sweat and the tears that have been baked into this road? How can we walk here and not feel that pain? I think that there is enormous value in thinking like that, in bringing to mind the suffering that has filled and continues to fill the world around us. And this exercise of bringing to mind the suffering of others, even when they are, even when they are not there, also gives us a window into what Simcha Zissel saw as the key to understanding the Torah. He described Moses' path towards God, for example, in this kind of way, beginning with Moses' first moment of insight in Egypt. Moses walked out from the palace where he lived, and he cried out to the Egyptians, how can you live in peace when people are enslaved around you? Do not feel the great suffering that is being experienced in this place. Do not see the blood and sweat and tears that are being baked into these bricks. And Moses kept a mental image of this suffering in mind, even when the slaves were not before his eyes. Their suffering burned before his eyes to such an extent that he could not escape their pain. He felt their pain deeply. So we'll turn to the handout now, and I want to show you just one selection from a longer discussion where Simcha Zissel describes the work of Musar, the work of moral discipline that shaped Moses in Egypt. This is source number one, where Simcha Zissel is instructing his students on how to keep the pain of others in your mind. He writes, it is only possible to feel another's pain and to share the other's burden by utilizing significant mental images so that with all the pain and suffering and injury which happen to another person, 
It is as if it happened to oneself. This is one of Simcha Zissel's central lessons for his students. Empathy is essential. Empathy that requires imagination, keeping in mind the pain of others so that one is sharing their burden and feeling their pain. And he continues, you can learn this lesson from Moses. The Torah in the book of Exodus states that, in our second paragraph, Moses grew up and saw the slaves suffering. The biblical commentator Rashi explains, he focused his eyes and his heart to suffer on their account. Let's pause there for a moment. Simchazesel notes that the classical commentator Rashi understands Moses' seeing to be more than just seeing. Seeing refers to a kind of focusing that allows for a kind of compassion, suffering with them. And I think that the explanation from Simchazesel that follows is significant, and I'll keep reading from source one. Simchazesel explains, this means he habituated himself to suffering on their account through a mental image. He habituated himself to seeing mental images to such an extent that he felt their pain as if he himself was in such pain. And so he came to be sharing their burden. We'll pause there for a moment. I just want to focus our attention on the ways in which Simcha Zissel understands feeling the pain of the other as involving seeing images within one's mind, not just images before one's eyes. As he often explains elsewhere in his writing, our compassion is aroused by seeing images of others suffering, but our compassion easily wanes when those others are no longer before us. Training ourselves to see images of suffering in our minds is essential to the practice of Musar because these mental images help us to maintain the compassion that otherwise so easily fades. And that is what Moses trains himself to do, to habituate himself to see mental images so that the pain of the slaves is deeply present for him, so that the pain of oppression is part of his way of seeing felt deeply in his heart, a habit of the heart formed through meditating with deep empathy, a habit of the heart that brings Moses to act and seek to save those who are oppressed. And I didn't yet read the final words in this selection, but we should note that Simcha Zissel sees sharing the burden of someone in pain by taking their pain on yourself as what God does. Moses felt their pain as if he himself was in such pain, and so he came to be sharing their burden, just as God did. As the biblical prophet Isaiah put it, with all of their pain, God was pained. Simcha Zissel often describes God as the essence of love, the epitome of compassion. And that means that God is pained when God's creatures are pained, for true love, true compassion requires taking on the burden of the other, seeing, sharing the burden of the other, just to see a bit more of this description of God, I included source number two, also from Simcha Zissel's writings, where he describes a deep love as God's fundamental quality, and as a quality that can be imitated not only by Moses, but by all of us. 
So I'll read from source number two. The fundamental quality of God is that God loves all creatures. Were it not so, they could not exist in the world. And we find that loving God's creatures is closeness to the blessed one, to God. Our sages in their holy way have taught us how can a person draw close to the blessed one by cleaving to God's attributes. Loving God's creatures is closeness to God. If you want to know how close you are to God, you should see how much you are loving God's creatures. Simchizosel is here drawing on a passage in the Talmud where God's attributes are described as attributes of chesed, attributes of loving kindness that can be directly imitated through human loving kindness, through clothing the naked, visiting the sick, comforting mourners, burying the dead. And so Simchizosel concludes this paragraph there are none of God's character traits that are more apparent to us than love of God's creatures. To imitate God here means to imitate ideal character traits, divine character traits. First and foremost, the character trait of love for others, compassionate love for all of God's creatures, meeting the needs of others in need, as you can see in the second paragraph of source number two. Quoting the book of Psalms, you open up your hand and satisfy the need, satisfy the desire of all that lives. We see that every single creature receives pleasure and satisfaction for its desire. And this is simply God's love for God's creatures. And consequently, we find that the prohibition on causing suffering to animals comes from the Torah and that the world is built upon loving kindness. In Hebrew, olam chesed ibaneh, the world is built upon love, upon loving kindness. For Simchizosel, the divine ideal of compassion extends to all that lives, and human beings are in turn called upon to build the world upon loving kindness. The Torah's prohibition on causing needless suffering to non-human animals flows from this, and so does the need to prevent suffering to human beings. Although I haven't included the continuation of Moses' story here, I should note that Simchizosel sees these insights as central to Moses' journey. Moses begins by responding with compassion to the suffering of the Hebrew, his fellow Hebrews enslaved in Egypt, seeking to share their burden. He then escapes to Midian, where he sees the suffering of Midianite women, Jethro's daughters, and he responds with compassion seeking to share their burden. And when he becomes a shepherd in Midian, Moses sees the suffering of his flock, of his sheep, sensitive to the needs of all sentient creatures. As Simchizosel puts it, Moses seeks to share the burden of the flock. And through this, Moses comes to sense the suffering of God, who calls out to him from a burning bush at Sinai, saying, how can you live in peace amidst all of the suffering? How can you live in peace when the Hebrew slaves are still in slavery? And Moses seeks to share God's burden. When Moses returns to Sinai with those slaves now free, God calls out to him saying, how can you live in peace when these people are so far from knowing how to love each other? Here is my burden. Here is my Torah. Here is its central commandment to love your fellow as yourself. And here is all the commentary that builds on this central commandment. Take it and teach this people to love. Teach this people to share the burdens with which others are struggling. Teach this people to see the world through the eyes of others. Help this people to be a people who are known 
for their compassion. Help this people to be a people who are engaged in the work of Musar, who bring Musar moral discipline to their passions, who focus themselves on being the best people that they can possibly be. Simcha Zesol saw Moses as responding to God's call, and he saw all of Moses' people as called in this way, and he saw himself as called to do all that he could to awaken them to lives dedicated to Musar, to, to developing character traits of humility and reverence and equanimity and, above all, compassionate love, the kind of love called for by the commandment to love one's fellow as oneself. Crucially, from Simcha Zissel's perspective, when Moses records the commandment to love your fellow as yourself, the central commandment of the Torah, he does not hope that his people will engage in deeds of loving kindness simply because they are commanded to do so. Rather, they should aspire to become compassionate because compassion has become a part of their character, where it has become natural, where we respond to others with the same sort of natural, easy generosity that most human beings only reserve for themselves and their families, right? Most of us respond to our hunger by feeding ourselves without having to be commanded. Most of us respond to the hunger of our dependent children by feeding them without having to be commanded. Most of us need to be commanded to respond to the hunger of others in need. And hence the need for the commandment to love your fellow as yourself. But for Simcha Zissel, we should keep in mind the divine ideal of treating others equally to how we treat ourselves, responding to the needs of others with real empathy, feeling the hunger of others as we feel our own hunger, responding to that hunger with natural compassion. This is an impossible ideal to reach, and yet we are called toward it, taking whatever slow, small steps we can. You can see Simcha Zissel's way of expressing this in source number three on the second page of the handout. Source number three, loving one's fellow as oneself. We are warned to slowly, slowly accustom ourselves to the character trait of generosity to such an extent that we will give charity in the way that one gives to one's children, to whom one does not give because of the commandment of charity, but in the way that one puts food in one's own mouth, which is with pleasure, with joy. A person finds joy whenever one is able to please one's family with clothes and food and drink. A person needs to accustom oneself to the character trait of generosity in this way to such an extent that one finds joy in helping and providing for the poor as if they are truly part of one's family. And this is as the matter of loving your fellow as yourself. I'll read on here. One should love one's fellow as one loves oneself, for a person does not love oneself to fulfill the commandment of loving God's creatures, but rather one loves oneself naturally. Thus the warning is given to a person that one should accustom oneself to the character trait of loving God's creatures slowly, slowly until one naturally loves the other and naturally rejoices in the good of the other, just as one naturally rejoices in one's own good and the good of one's children. 
rather than to fulfill a commandment. For then, if you were just loving to fulfill a commandment, then one's love would not be complete. One's love will only be complete if one loves naturally. And this, he writes, and this is the goal of the commandment and the desire of the Blessed One in commanding loving your fellow as yourself. And in this way, one will come to resemble the Blessed One. Human beings will never fully resemble God in this idealized vision of love, but it is the aspirational vision of the Torah, the greatest hope that we can dream of no matter how impossible the goal, a world in which people find joy in helping others, a world in which compassion is that deeply rooted within human hearts. I think that is a vision worth keeping in mind. And part of what I love about the literature of the Musar movement is that it often encourages me to keep that goal in mind. And at the same time, and at the same time, it often encourages me to remember how morally frail we are. This is something that is also especially emphasized in the writings of Simchas de Solziv. He wrote a good deal about all kinds of ways in which human beings so easily struggle to be moral for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes because our attention is elsewhere, sometimes because our emotions are complicated and confusing, sometimes because he says we are just cruel. You can see some texts along these lines in source number four, the fragility of love. For example, one who wants to habituate oneself in the character trait of generosity, who engages in charity, tzedakah, and acts of loving kindness, who provides food and drink for the poor, can deeply increase the generosity within one's heart, and nevertheless, but nevertheless, we know that even the best of them, even the best of them can revert to being reborn with a cruel nature. Or, next paragraph, when a person focuses upon some matter, one is weakened in another matter. For example, one who immerses oneself very strongly in the study of Torah may become weak in the matter of loving and doing good for people. This is because our reason is too powerless to include all of the parts in balance. Right? Even the best of us can revert to cruelty. Torah study may help us to be good, but Torah study may actually weaken our capacity to be good. Torah study may actually weaken our capacity to be good. Acts of loving kindness will certainly help us to help to make us into more loving people, but they will not protect us from sometimes becoming cruel. Perhaps meditating on the suffering of others will help, as it did for Moses, but nothing is guaranteed. Part of what inspired the Musar movement to encourage its students to engage in all different sorts of activities, including all of these activities, including also practices of prayer and conversation and journaling and emotionally charged chanting, was likely an awareness that there is no simple, single path to goodness. Musar movement yeshivas even encouraged their students to come up with their own methods tailored to their individual personalities. You should figure out what works because you will need it. Human beings are complicated and unstable and vulnerable and often cruel. And Musar will take great creativity 
deep self-awareness and ongoing struggle. Nothing is guaranteed, but some things may help. People can change slowly, slowly, uncertainly. The words slowly, slowly, which you can see in source number three here, show up constantly in Simchazisl's writings as he reflects on how any changes that happen within us will happen slowly. Right? Slowly through practice and more practice and more practice and through developing new habits, habits of meditating with concentration on divine loving kindness or habits of pausing before speaking or habits of giving tzedakah every day or habits of seeing something good in everyone you meet or habits of seeking out a small opportunity to show loving kindness every day or habits of putting oneself in the shoes of others and feeling the burden that they are bearing and seeing how one can share that burden. Whatever habits we build are always fragile. It will always be so easy to backslide on our commitments and we will so easily rationalize whatever we do because we all like to think of ourselves as good people even when there are so many ways that we could each be better. And yet we can also develop strategies for overcoming our rationalizations. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. I am I'm not a disinterested historian of the Musar movement. There is a lot in these early Musar movement writings that I find very compelling. I love the recognition of how complicated human psychology is and the recognition of how moral change, when it happens at all, often happens slowly and inconsistently and the recognition of how cultivating virtue will be an ongoing struggle. And I love the many of the paths of Musar practice pioneered by Israel Salanter and Simcha Zisolziv and I'm sure I'm not alone in this room in being grateful for ways in which many of these practices can make something of a difference. Working on different character traits one at a time does seem to work. Being a part of a Musar group, being accountable to other people who are working on that same character trait at the same time does seem to help. Being accountable for meeting concrete goals to engage in loving kindness does seem to help. Being reminded of the suffering of others, bringing that suffering to mind, does seem to work. There is, there is indeed some good empirical evidence regarding some of these techniques, and especially pertinent to our theme today, there is good evidence that imagining the suffering of others does really help us to be more loving. So for a very approachable recent book that deals with this evidence. I especially recommend a book by Dr. Christian Miller of Wake Forest University titled The Character Gap, How Good Are We? A title which is on your handout at the start of source number five. The Character Gap, How Good Are We? In which Dr. Miller brings a good deal of empirical evidence from contemporary psychology on the question of how good are we to suggest that we are not as good as we think we are but neither are most of us utterly cruel. And there are ways in which most of us can become better people. This is an understanding that has much in common with the Musar movement approach that I have described today. 
I should say that Dr. Miller is a scholar whose work focuses on contemporary research on moral character carried out by psychologists. And he published a gracious response to my book on Simcha Zolziv in the Journal of Jewish Ethics last year. And I put a little snippet from his conclusion on your handout, source number five. Miller points to the evidence for how exercises to cultivate empathy along the lines of what we saw back in source number one do seem to help human beings become more altruistic and loving. And so he writes, source number five, at least as far as we know at the current time, the emotion of empathy is necessary for cultivating loving motivation and thereby the virtue of love itself. Here is the remarkable thing. Simcha Zissel himself proposed that empathy is crucial to developing the virtue of altruistic love. For now, at least, the empirical research has vindicated Simcha Zissel's approach here. We need to become far more empathetic towards the psychological lives of other people than we tend to be naturally. The path of Musar, in this respect, at least becomes a path devoted to discovering and internalizing strategies for increasing our empathetic capacities. I find this enormously encouraging. To the degree that the path of Musar can be a path of discovering and internalizing strategies for increasing empathy, it has enormous potential for helping us to build a better world, a more compassionate world, a world filled with deeper love. I think that the 19th century Musar movement offers us a powerful model for Jewish practice, and that it offers us powerful ideas and ideals regarding compassion in particular. But as the title of our program indicates, I also want any of us who are interested in building on its legacy to think critically about the Musar movement as a historical movement and to consider its strengths along with its weaknesses. I'd like to briefly highlight three reasons that I think we should be extremely cautious when drawing on the legacy of this 19th century Orthodox movement. These will be totally unsurprising words of caution as my concerns are concerns that I hope many of you carry with you when you deal with any traditional Jewish sources. Number one is a concern regarding ethnocentrism. Number two is a concern about gender. And number three is a concern about dogmatic orthodoxy. So first, ethnocentrism. Earlier, I described the divine ideal of treating others equally with real empathy, all others. And I noted that Simcha Zissel Ziv described Moses as having compassion not only for his fellow Hebrews, but also for Midianite women, the daughters of Jethro. I should share that part of my own attraction to Simcha Zissel among all the leaders of the Musar movement is precisely that he had a characteristic concern with showing love for all people, regardless of their identities. But this was not the norm within the Musar movement. Other Musar movements more clearly asserted the superiority of Jews over non-Jews and made it clear that Jews were more deserving of love and compassion. And even Simcha Zissel's writings reflect a deep ethnocentrism. Yes, he thought one should love all people, but he clearly thought that Jews were superior to non-Jews in a variety of ways, and most of his writing on love stresses the love of other Jews, not the love of people per se, which reflects the emphasis of the classical rabbinic texts 
on which he was drawing. And yes, he notes that Moses shows compassion for Jethro's Midianite daughters, but in passages that I find particularly disturbing, he also delights in how Moses ordered the slaughter of all Midianite male children. That's a story found in the Torah at the end of the book of Numbers. Moses knew how to respond with mercy for his people when Pharaoh sought to enslave them and kill male Jewish children. And Moses knew, according to this vision, Moses knew when it was necessary to put aside mercy and choose cruelty. And when given the opportunity to kill Midianite children, and I should add all Midianite males, as well as non-virginal women, to take that opportunity. When he is reflecting on Moses' wisdom, Simchazisel writes that Moses realized that God was not only merciful, but was also cruel when necessary. And to imitate God means to be merciful when necessary and cruel when necessary. And we too, Simchazisel writes, should imitate this. I think that we should be deeply suspicious of this kind of rhetoric and the ethnocentric assumptions about the non-Jewish enemies of the Jews that are at play here. Part of my concern is a concern with the emphasis on empathy. Empathy is a powerful motivator for love, but it is not a reliable guide to morality. Most of us are prone to feel the pain of those to whom we are most attached and liable to ignore the pain of others, even when their pain is in fact more serious and when there are many others. We bring to mind the image of oppressed Jewish children in Egypt, and this becomes so fixed in our eyes that we're indifferent to the slaughter of Midianite children. This is not a problem unique to the Musar movement at all. And I think that the Musar tradition has the resources within it to, to help us work on our character traits of fairness and justice and thoughtfulness that can help us direct our compassion more impartially. But our efforts to engage in Musar, I think, should be shaped by an awareness of this problem. And I hope that our Musar groups today can improve on the efforts of our 19th century forebears. So too with gender. The patriarchal worldviews expressed by the men who led the 19th century Musar movement were not particularly exceptional. They were not notably more horrifying than the patriarchal views of many men throughout history, including men who led other Jewish movements, movements both more liberal and more conservative. But they upheld a kind of patriarchy that we should see very clearly and that I think we should critique very clearly. Part of the vision of the Musar movement, rabbis in Lithuania, was that they would support and entrench a particular model of patriarchy that emerged in Lithuania, whereby women were tasked both with raising children and also with earning livelihoods that would support the uninterrupted, full-time, unpaid study of their scholarly husbands. Women dealt in the material realm. Men dealt with the spiritual realm, a model, of course, that persists in varying degrees in many places to this day. I see occasional apologetics from teachers today who are interested in showing how great the Musar movement was because both men and women were able to study Musar equally, unlike Talmud, which was only for men. But that is deeply misleading. Musar teachers may have thought that it was important for both men and women to improve their character traits, to engage in Musar, 
but we should see very clearly that men were granted time and space to study and meditate on Musar undisturbed, and women were not granted time and space at all. The story about Rabbi Israel Salanter taking care of a crying baby and a scared child is exceptional. And Salanter was able to return to the synagogue and to the study hall as soon as the mother returned home. Many other stories about rabbis in the Musar movement delight in the ways that these rabbis were distant from their wives and children, distant from their homes, distant from all material concerns. Simchazes Ziv lived at his yeshiva, not at home, during the week, and he refused to be disturbed by his family. According to legend, according to one legend, to take one striking example, even refusing to be disturbed to hear reports on how his son was recovering when his son had just been injured. As we have seen, Simchazes did often stress caring for the physical needs of others in his writings. But at times, as we've also now seen, he balanced his calls for compassion with calls to cruelty. And he often did so in explicitly gendered terms, especially with regards to family. At one point, he writes that mothers will have mercy on the bodies of their sons, but men must show mercy to the intellects of their sons, and that in order to help their sons grow spiritually, they must be physically cruel to their sons. A teaching that follows a famous teaching in the Babylonian Talmud about how a father should be cruel. Cruel as a raven in the Talmud's language. There is great potential for learning kindness from Musar movement texts. And there is also, I think, a great danger that those who study Musar will learn cruelty. That's, again, not a problem unique for those who study Musar. Studying all sorts of human traditions, Jewish or not Jewish, religious or not religious, all sorts of human traditions can encourage our cruelty. But I think that the Musar movement's calls to cruelty are important to highlight precisely because we should always see how profound compassion and profound cruelty can often come from the same sources and because we have our work cut out for us in ensuring that the 21st century renewal of the Musar movement will be less enamored of misogynistic male cruelty. And I should add I should add that guidance for the work of Musar to the work of cultivating moral virtues will become better with the inclusion of more voices that are not male, and also voices that think critically about gender. Some of the best Musar-focused writing over the past 20 years have been from female rabbis, including Rabbi Amy Alberg, Rabbi Susan Schnorr, Rabbi Ruth Abush Magdar, and others who have written about ways in which prescriptions for character traits might sound different depending on gender especially given the ways that men and women are often socialized differently. For example, a recent article by Rabbi Abush Magdar focuses on ways in which calls for women to humble themselves often come across very differently than calls for men to humble themselves, given the ways that women are often criticized as arrogant for taking up the same amount of space that men are. The male rabbis of the Musar movement could have learned from this critique and building better models of Musar requires attending to it. Finally, a word about what I called dogmatic orthodoxy a moment ago. The Musar movement was not promoting any moderate 
form of Orthodox Judaism. Most of its leaders promoted a strongly dogmatic vision of orthodoxy. Much of the focus of their efforts was to defend orthodox dogmas from liberalizing Jews who asked critical questions about Jewish tradition. The writings that we have from the Musar movement often focus more on cultivating faith in dogmas about God than on virtues of love and compassion. And even Simchas Solziv, who was particularly focused on love and compassion, had his vision of compassion and cruelty shaped in disturbing ways by dogmas that he refused to question. So part of the reason that Simchas Zissel so fiercely defends the necessity of cruelty is because he was seeking to defend the cruelty that is described in the Torah, and he was certain that the Torah is a perfect expression of God's will, and he would never have dared to question that dogma. And he expelled the students from his yeshiva who did question that dogma. He was also so certain that everything happens in the world, he was so certain that everything that happens in the world is an expression of God's will, such that even all of the cruelty that happens in the world is actually good, that he was encouraged in his belief that to imitate God, we must also be cruel. And despite a lot of compelling writing about the importance of being self-critical and accepting the criticism of others, Simchas Esol was ultimately quite certain that Orthodox Jews like himself were on the side of the good, and that those who threatened their orthodoxy were threats to the good, leading to a deep intolerance that often seems strikingly arrogant. This arrogance was sometimes expressed in the language of compassion, as when Simchazissel's son rejoiced in hearing the news of the death of a newspaper publisher who was a critic of orthodoxy, and Simchazissel told him instead to be filled with empathy, to have compassion on that critic's soul, which would now surely be tormented in the world to come. Right? Have compassion. Have compassion for the souls of the wicked. I am sure that this compassion was heartfelt, if only because Simchazissel was so certain that this critic had been so wrong during his lifetime. But we could hope for better visions of compassion that are grounded more in respect for our critics and less grounded in condescending pity for their souls. The problem of dogmatism is, of course, also not unique to the world of the Musar movement or to Orthodox movements in general. All of us have our own beliefs about which we are certain we are right and that we are eager to defend. And the practices promoted by the Musar movement can help us here. The Musar movement did encourage its students to be open to criticism and to think critically, even though I think its model of thinking critically was very narrowly circumscribed, and I wish that its leaders in practice had been more open. But so this can be a charge for us. I hope that we may build communities focused on character development that take those virtues of openness and critical thinking very seriously. I am tremendously excited by the growth of interest in Musar, in communities like this one, and in so many communities throughout the world. And I'm excited for ways that the growth of that movement can continue to take place with historical perspective and with a firm spiritual commitment to deepening our compassion. I hope that our communities can continue to deepen our commitments to seeing those in need and to opening our ears to the cries of all who are vulnerable and to sharing their burdens 
and to being as loving as we can be. So thank you for being here this afternoon, and I would love to hear your questions and comments. Um, the Musar movements in Eastern Europe, Lithuania, um, there were stories of conflicts, disagreements, hatred, which would seem to be totally contrary, even though it was all Jewish right. involved. Um, what's your sense of why there were differences or similarities, and well, how does that sit today in various movements, if you will? Yeah, so you're thinking about um, hatred and animosity between the Musar movement and other movements? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that especially is strengthened by a deep sense that many movements had that they were the true authentic expression of Torah, the true authentic expression of God's will. Um, and yeah, um, I mean, the, the many figures within the Musar movement, many students of the Musar movement really had a hostility towards other expressions that they viewed as, um, as deeply inferior. Um, I mean, some of that obviously persists in various parts of the Jewish world today. Um, and in, right, I mean, that's a pretty perennial human problem in lots of different kinds of human communities. But where's the compassion? The respect? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's at the heart of my concerns about valorizing the Musar movement too much, um, or valorizing any movement too much that thinks too much of itself. Um, and I hope that we can build movements that are more humble and more respectful. Number one, most movements come into being as a response to something. Yeah. So my first question is, what were they responding to? And secondly, maybe part of that same question is my understanding uh, is to a large extent they were responding to the growth of Hasidim in the 19th century, somehow trying to distinguish themselves from that. Yeah. Um, so the Musar movement, um, I think of as less as responding to Hasidism, although I'll get there in a second, um, and more responding as a sort of um, movement within particular cities in Lithuania where there is less pressure from Hasidism, but more pressure from other sorts of Jewish movements. Um, and above all, um, what's often called the Mitnagdic movement, um, the uh, movement, the yeshiva, what became the yeshiva movement, and the movement of non-Hasidic Lithuanian Torah scholars to sort of galvanize Jews around their vision of, above all, studying Talmud as the um, most wonderful of all possible human activities. Um, and on the other side, the growth of the Haskalah movement, the Jewish Enlightenment movement, um, a movement that sought various kinds of modernizing or liberalizing kinds of patterns um, in Eastern Europe. Um, the Musar movement tried in particular, I think, to respond. It emerged from people who were um, in that traditionalist, uh, what became the yeshiva movement kind of world. Um, and it emerged among people responding to the sort of focus on a certain model of Jewish education, very much focused on the Talmud, in order to counter that with a kind of focus on another huge body of Jewish literature, Musar literature, literature focused on spiritual growth, moral growth, and character traits. Um, and much of much of the energy of the movement is sort of 
against that movement. And much of it is in opposing the Haskalah and opposing any kind of modernization, any kind of liberalization of Judaism. There are also ways in which um, the, the Hasidic movement did not really permeate the areas where the Musar movement uh, took off. Um, the most there are ways in which you can think of it as sort of filling a kind of space maybe that the Hasidic movement filled in some other Orthodox Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. Um, like the Hasidic movement, the Musar movement was deeply sectarian in that it was right, this sort of um, sect that thought of itself as superior to other sects. Um, that's something that's also very characteristic of the Hasidic movement. Um, like the Hasidic movement also, Musar movement teachers focused on meditation and contemplative techniques um, and the inner life. And like the Hasidic movement, they were concerned about overly intellectually focused study. So there are ways in which um, there's sort of a similar space that some things may be, um, the Musar movement may be filling some similar sorts of spaces. Um, there's a lot that's really different there, especially, I mean, the one thing that distinguishes Hasidism from other Jewish movements is its focus on the tzaddik, the rabbi, the charismatic figure who has, is viewed as having a unique channel to the divine. Um, and that was less central for the Musar movement, although critics of Simchas Zolziv, for example, saw him as kind of like a Hasidic rabbi who came into this town in Kelm and set himself up you know, as a rabbi for his Hasidim. Um, and told them, don't worry about studying the Talmud, just focus on the inner life. Um, so there's something there that uh, definitely has something in common. Moving down. I enjoyed your talk very much. And Thank I you. have a burning question, which I'm fairly sure that you answered. I'm a reform Jew here at Temple High, but I work um, for, uh, I work, do volunteer work for Smile Seniors, which is a Habad-based program. And they're totally responding to very holy, I think, call um, filling a void with seniors in our community, mm -hmm. um, responding to loneliness, essentially. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. So it's confusing to me, and I asked uh, the Rebbe that I work with uh, why they, I don't understand why they wouldn't study Musar because it's all about compassion. So I'm fairly sure I heard the answer here today because there's a lot of emphasis punitive things going on, and an arrogance, and uh, Rabbi Levy said they don't want to focus on those sorts of things. So I think I'm not the most scholarly person. First of all, I had my maybe history reversed, that what came first, Hasidism or Musa, like a, so, and you said that this Musa movement is a response to the, so I, I it's, yeah, 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 no, let me try to unravel a little please, more, maybe. Um, so, so let me distinguish Musar as a sort of genre, as a sort of widespread tradition that is engaged in, that has been central to the lives of many diverse Jews and many diverse movements, and this particular movement that called itself the Musar movement that tried to make Musar central. Um, so Musar as, in general, sort of a focus on the development of character traits um, is a feature, let's just focus on like movements prominent in the 19th century, was, you know, was a feature of the reform movement, whose leaders um, you know, preached things about how to develop character traits, was, you know, was a feature of 
what became the conservative movement was a feature of what became modern orthodoxy, was a feature of all kinds of different Hasidic sects, including Chabad, was a feature of this movement that called itself the Musar movement that wanted to place a particular focus on this kind of way of being, um, but by no means had a monopoly on that. So early, I mean, early Chabad texts are also Musar literature. They also, in my view, suffer from all the same kinds of problems that I described the Musar movement as having. They have their own particular um, quirks and tendencies and um, issues. Um, but they, um, the Hasidic movement valued Musar in ways that might have something in common, as I, as I suggested before, with um, ways that the Musar movement valued Musar. Um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, uh, they often do. I mean, sometimes they may not use the word Musar. So when, so, so when, when, when a Chabad group has a class on the Tanya, I mean, the, the Tanya is largely um, a work of Musar. I find it an immensely disturbing work of Musar, personally, um, for some of the kinds of reasons that I mentioned um, regarding the Musar movement. Um, but it's, it's a work of Musar that uh, is designed to be studied in a way that shapes people's souls. Um, and some of, I mean, Yeah, I would say that most of these groups are very dogmatic. Even in civic affairs, yet there's claiming to be... Yeah, I think, so, so most, most Jewish movements throughout history have been very dogmatic and claimed to not be dogmatic. And, um, and there, there is, um, and maybe all the more so today, there is a kind of positioning of different movements and different kinds of Jews and positioning themselves and saying, like, we're, you know, we don't have the problems of right, this kind of movement. The Musar movement was too whatever, too dogmatic, too, um, too sectarian or something, we don't have that problem. And the same critique could easily be leveled of them. Okay, I, um, I'm not sure I have a question yet, but maybe because I talked about the format. So I've been studying so for about 15 years with Alan Marina. Great. And, um, and I think what you have taught is really important and not brought up enough that the historical relevance to keep in mind, because a lot of the students of the more modern Musar get caught up on the gender issues and the three things that you said. And I think if they understand the history, um, that would help a lot. And I think there is that confusion about why Kaba doesn't study and so forth. But I, you know, I was thinking, as you were talking, the renewal movement certainly brings in Hasidism in a more modern way. And just like the reform movement, and perhaps the Musar Institute with Alan Marinas brings in Hasidism. I mean, we study, you know, Rabbi Nachman all the time, and yeah. so forth, and, as part of our Musar study. Um, I um, just in your studies and your talking and so forth. I know you made some comments about some of the leaders, like Amy Eilberg, some of the women, and yes. I certainly studied Alan Remus and David Jaffe, mm -hmm. you know, whose work is all about justice. So I, I, I would like you to maybe address how they have um, made Musar so accessible mm -hmm. to even the secular Jew or the non-Jew as well. And I, I personally read Solinger and, and, and these different writings from the 19th century with pretty much complete comfort. Mm -hmm. I am very much okay looking at the he language, the God language. I have my own definition of God. I have my own understanding of gender. It doesn't offend me. It doesn't 
I don't feel the ethnocentricity, the gender issues, I don't feel orthodoxy. It, it just doesn't bother me really at all except for knowing how important it is to realize it and that for some people they'll get stuck. Yeah. So maybe my question is, how do you feel about 21st century Musar? Yeah, I, I mean, so, I, so 21st century Musar is being produced and advanced by many diverse Jews in many different ways often really disagreeing with each other about the content of what character traits should be about. Um, so I, I deeply admire the work of the Musar Institute. Um, I love Alan Marinas um, personally and in, in many ways. Um, I would, I mean, so I can share one project I'm working on right now is a book um, that seeks to anthologize and consider just how, um, just how much different sorts of Jews disagree about different character traits, um, about what it means to be grateful, about what it means to love, about what it means um, to be forgiving, and so on. Um, and I do have some caution regarding, um, so, so you mentioned sort of efforts to appeal to, you know, the Musar movement, this uh, interesting Orthodox movement from the 19th century, and also Hasidic works um, from the 19th century. Um, I notice there um, what is left out of the conversation sometimes. Um, a peculiar thing about some of the work to develop Musar within reform contexts um, is how little figures who um, have been reform Jews, reform rabbis, reform ethical teachers um, are often left out somehow. And for for interesting, yeah, 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 for interesting sociological reasons, um, there's a kind of sense of the authenticity of figures who are more orthodox. I would be extremely suspicious of that. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and in general, I'd be wary of efforts to serve. Um, I think some of the temptation for many teachers of Musar is to say, again, for reasons of sort of getting the authority of the tradition behind you, to say, you know, Musar teaches this, right? In the same way that people say, like, Judaism teaches this. Like, really, there's no such thing as some Musar that teaches something or Judaism that teaches some things. There are many diverse sorts of teachers who teach very different things, um, and we should be very conscious of how they mean very different things when they talk about moral development. Um, I'm very new uh, at studying Musar. I'm like a kindergarten, not even a kindergarten level. But when you talk about empathy as so important, that, that's, that's so in sync with my own ideas about a purpose in the world. Um, this is such a cliche thing, but when we talk about empathy, does that extend to people like that? In a certain kind of sense. I mean, so empathy in the sense of being able to understand others. Well, like in, in our Musar group, we say, you show us a whole and soul, including. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's an important practice to put yourself inside the shoes of many sorts of diverse people. Um, and without going exactly the, to the Hitler example, um, I think it's really important to understand why people choose to act the way that they do. Um, and I mean, that's why it's really important to study history 
in large part is precisely to arrive at deeper understanding of why people are the way that they are. Um, so I, um, I think there's great benefit in studying people who say many horrible things because we can understand more deeply um, why they are the way that they are and how the world could be made better. So yeah, I mean, I think that um, deep empathy in all sorts of ways is valuable. At the same time, empathy is dangerous. Um, there is, I don't know if any of you have seen the book Against Empathy um, by Paul Bloom, a psychologist, um, who uh, makes a sort of overdone case as to why empathy is dangerous. Um, his argument, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, his argument is that right, empathy is a response to seeing something immediate and being drawn to, you know, to focus on that one thing. And often how we work as human beings is that we have empathy for, you know, for the people who are closest to us or for particular sorts of people, and we ignore much more serious problems in the world um, because of being drawn in one particular sorts of direction. Um, I think that is a problem with empathy-focused approaches. Um, I think that's a danger in the kind of empathy-centered vision of, of Simplicis Olzeev in particular. That's why I have some concerns about the kind of ethnocentrism, um, about the kind of narrowness of the movement in some sorts of ways. Um, empathy can be you know, directed very narrowly and therefore can be very disturbing and can end up leading to a great deal of cruelty. Um, at the same time, I don't think that means that one should therefore you know, do away with empathy, which is kind of what um, Paul Bloom goes a bit in that direction. I think that's a bit overdone. Empathy is enormously powerful at motivating loving action um, and doing the, best what we, you know, doing the best that we can to find out what needs exist in the world and how to respond to them lovingly and directing our empathy accordingly is, in my view, really, really important. Isn't a lot of the empathy you could potentially have for, for others inhibited by the tribalism in the world? And that yeah. there's, and in particular in Jewish history, there's been so much oppression that it's affected the way we relate to the outside world, such as comments about we don't have to necessarily do things um, that the government wants. We can go behind them because they're not on our side from past history. Yes. So it would almost be impossible to expect Jews to have tremendous empathy for the people persecuting. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so that, right, I think it's really important to see the ethnocentrism of pretty much all pre-modern and many modern Jews um, and to see it and to understand it, right, with a certain kind of empathy um, and to avoid being overly traumatized by legacies of persecution um, and right, imagining the persecution exists in places where it doesn't seem to exist today. I don't mean to deny the existence of ongoing persecution, um, but being part of the work of Musar at its best involves sort of an awareness of that trauma and an awareness of our scars, an awareness of our tribalism. Um, and that means often challenging pre-modern Jewish texts that are deeply tribal. Um, I think that's important for the work of Musar in the 21st century. Some of my understanding from Musar, and maybe it's not from Musar, and maybe it's not your understanding, and I'd be curious, is that um, in answer to that question, is that we, we each are a soul, mm -hmm. 
And at its purest point, the neshama, everybody is a pure soul. To me, that would include Hitler. But we have veils. Mm -hmm. And some people have very heavy veils because of genetics, because of why they come into this world, their temperament, their purpose in life, family of origin, their hardships, their character, and so forth. People like Hitler have very heavy veils to get to their neshama. And most of us, I mean, we all have veils. And I have been taught, and I understand that Musar is a wonderful tool for clearing those veils to get to that pure soul. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I don't know if that's taught in Musar or that's my understanding, but um, that has helped me with questions. Uh, and, and, and not to be naive at the same time, think, you know, Hitler just had that luck, you know, he's really a good guy. I mean, I certainly mm -hmm. don't believe that. But, um, but that's been my interpretation of, that, of those kind of questions. And what honor means is that we all have that pure soul. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's really beautiful um, and really a good thing to focus on and um, really a good point of meditation on a daily basis. Um, and being able, whether you think about it as a matter of soul or just a matter of goodness, um, which uh, is not a big difference to me. Um, I think that in whatever language works for you, being able to focus on the good in people, including people who seem um, really horrible in lots of ways to you, um, is a really important practice of love, of justice, of respect. Um, I think that is. Yeah. 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 Um, so again, so going back to the tribalism and the ethnocentricity, um, just because I I do think it's valuable to go back there. Um, so it's also important to sort of see the the history of that kind of vision and the ways that it often relies on, um, so like, Nachman Abratzlov, for example, as a figure who like did have interesting rhetoric about seeing good sparks in people, like he really saw those good sparks in being in just Jews. I mean, it's really important to see that, in part to see sort of how, um, how easily warped visions of compassion can be. But yeah, I think that there's immense goodness in widening our circle. Just one other point I want to make is that I think it's wonderful that you show us the other side and that we remember history and that's what always makes me uncomfortable about sort of the new age religions. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, hocus pocus. You know, everybody is a good person. They just have, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yes. And without looking at, you know, well, you know, historically, that's not always been so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I appreciate that we always remember the, to, to look at the other side, too. Thank you. Thank you. So um, as I was listening to you describing um, <clears throat> where this started and how, I heard a description of people as having, um, as not having the innate ability to be empathetic. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that that's a Christian concept of original sin. Mm -hmm. I can't be good unless I work at being good. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I will be a sinner. Mm -hmm. And I, I was, I'm, I'm like, I don't know that I ever encountered that as a Jewish concept that we are born bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's a very, a very Jewish concept in much of the history of Jewish literature. Not all modern Jews subscribe to that kind of idea. Um, but that sense that human beings are, um, are sort of flawed in some sort of way, maybe not irredeemably 
sinful to such a degree that they need um, you know, an amazing infusion of outside grace, although you can find that also in many traditional Jewish sources, um, but in various ways the sense that human beings are, um, are deeply flawed and deeply in need of help and deeply struggling um, yeah, is an understanding that I think is, is found in many. Because I, I think yeah. you can look at this at the top without going under it mm -hmm. and say, gee, how can anyone disagree with this? Right. Until you peel back the onion and you right. discover a, a lot of the conflicts that we're talking about, the yes. ethnocentrism, the anti-feminist, but I, I think even more important is to assume that we are all bad and mm -hmm. we've we got to fix that. Mm -hmm. That's as simplistic as the reverse of we're all good to Neshuma and just have to get rid of the veils. There has to be something in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, so I, I tried to hint briefly at the idea that I think there is enormous, um, I mentioned uh, Christian Miller's book, The Character Gap, as a really um, good book exactly on this theme, um, on the ways in which there is really good evidence at this point that people who think that we're really fundamentally good or really fundamentally bad are really just wrong on either side. Um, and there, there are so many ways in which human beings are really somewhere in the middle. Um, and one thing that is a, attractive in the vision of the Musar movement, um, in, in at least some Musar movement sources uh, that have done better than some other sources, um, is a sense of human beings as somewhere in the middle, um, is some sort of sense of balance there. Um, there are, there are um, sometimes that's expressed in, uh, in ways where you can find a statement of you know, human beings are really bad and you can find statements of human beings are really good. Um, and there's also a lot of expression of um, human beings are really in the middle. And um, that seems to me to be the dominant kind of vision. They, um, the Musar movement may have aimed too much on the side of assuming human evil um, a little. There's also lots of good evidence for human beings being pretty bad, so I'm okay with that. Um, but I appreciate the balance that you can find in some of this literature. Uh, what about um, the Musar movement and parenting? I mean, if you want to develop character, might as well start young. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you, you should ask my children, um, <laughs> who are really, um, who kind of delight in the fact that their parents um, are a servant to this, and like we do, we do lots of Musar kinds of things as a family. Um, and there are good efforts to develop curricula, both um, really in both of the two largest um, centers for the contemporary revival of Musar, focusing on this in various ways, both in the Musar Institute um, and also in the Center for Contemporary, Center for Contemporary Musar in Philadelphia, um, to work on sort of better curricula for focusing on character traits. Um, yeah. There's good work out there, and there's a lot of promise and potential, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybeitmadrash.org 
and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.